Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. The only people who feel uncomfortable at the lack of gender balance at a future women event are the men. And it's not lost on anyone that this is how millions of women feel every day. My guest today is one of those women, Dr. Bronwyn Evans. She was the first woman to graduate from electrical engineering at her university and has been the first female CEO several times over. All of this in a sector that boasts only 12% women. Bronwyn, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you for the opportunity to have a chat. It's 40 years since you started and there's still only 12% of women in your profession. Are you surprised by that? I think my um, my emotion, yes, it's surprised, but it's frustrated and terribly disappointed. We've made some progress, but my goodness, we have not made enough. Absolutely. Did you think by now in your career that it would be more like 20% rather than 12%? I certainly thought it'd be a whole lot higher. And if you look at the trajectory of other careers, where it, whether it's medicine, where it maybe took 50 years to go from 12% to 50%, you really have to say, why is our profession not making that sort of progress? So yes, I would have thought 20, 30% would have been the sort of place where we should expect to be in 2022. So I'm really interested in how you've navigated this space Mm. um, and been a pioneer or a trailblazer in this space. What do you think you did well? Look, I I think that, and, and it's something that I have reflected on, persistence is one of them. I think I owe that trade to my, my mother, who was someone who left school at 14, was a child of the depression. And if you didn't, you know, if you weren't persistent, if you, you didn't just roll your sleeves up and do things, nothing was going to happen. So in a way, I, I think that sort of persistence. And then there is a real joy in being an engineer. So, you know, just that love of doing that work and, and being able to make a difference in so many different ways. I think that's definitely what's kept me in the profession. But were there days where you were the only woman in the room, actually, were there entire years when you were the only woman in the room and you wondered how it is that you're hanging in there? No, I had the opposite uh, reaction to being the only woman in the room. And I, I distinctly remember on day one of my university career, which was I looked around the room and thought, yep, I'm the only girl. But I tell you what, if this bunch of pimply-faced boys is going to get <laughs> through their careers, I'm damn sure I am too. So it was more... Why should they be the only ones having the fun? So it was more a motivation to be making sure, no, it's going to be me. And and the other thing about being the only woman, yes, for sometimes years on end at a workplace is everyone knew your name, 
and you just had to call them mate. <laughs> so you always saw the upside. <laughs> there must have been days, though, where you sought help or guidance in sticky situations. And so firstly, who who were the people that you went to? Look, I come from a very large family with nearly all sisters. So part of that was using my family. My husband's also an engineer. So there would be times when I would be in tears sitting in his office or, or, or at home. So it was always looking for the people who were going to support you. And I did have male managers who took a chance on me and gave me opportunities. But yeah, I I think you do need to find the the people that are, are going to help pick you up and put you to back together again when you're feeling like that's not the way the world's turning. Resilience is something we talk a lot about these days. I don't think I talked about it much when I was starting out in my profession. If you had time to reflect on your own level of resilience? And is it something that you were born with through a big family or is it something you worked on? Probably both. Um, Certainly being one of the younger members in a large family, if you didn't have resilience, no one was going to take any notice of you. But I also saw that you need to find those tools to pick yourself up. And I really, I rebelled against when I saw organisational unfairness. And I'd try and think about how am I feeling when I see things are unfair? I've read all sorts of psychobabble to try and, you know, work a way through this to think about myself, to think about how I'm responding because sometimes you think, well, the world is not going to change that much. So are there things I can do in how I respond to that? But also how do you, you know, feel the fear, take a deep breath and have a go anyway? So some of it was all of that sort of trying to just say, yeah, look, sometimes life and the hand you're dealt isn't what you'd want it to be. So what can I do differently or not and muddle through? Did you ever feel pressure to just be better at everything? So you got better grades, did more study worked late into the night. Did you, did you suffer from, from that condition that's pretty certainly common for women? At, certainly at uni, <laughs> I went to every lab. I did every tute, every assignment. I was determined to get first class honours. So, yes, I worked really, really hard. The other thing is when you do that, you learn all the things that you are meant to learn <laughs> rather than um, going off to the uni bar and, and skipping exams. So I certainly felt that pressure academically. At times in in different roles, I felt like, yeah, I just had to really work hard, really commit myself to a a role. And sometimes, again, that pays off. And and other times, no amount of working extra hard is going to get you any notice. I'm asking all these questions because in the Future Women community, we have quite a few women working in male-dominated industries. And it comes up time and time again that they love their work, they love the location, but they really want help in navigating that kind of blokey culture. What would you tell them? What's your advice to them? I think that one of the best ways are to find allies, are to find friends, whether it's other women in your workplace or or men, because there'll be plenty of men who want to support women to be successful as well. So it's finding those allies And I think also finding the things that can just give you a break from work, 
because when you really want to succeed and you're really committed to your job, sometimes you just need the time and the thoughts to give you a break from sort of circling down. (laughs) I think the other piece of advice is there's no magic bullet waiting to happen, but there's probably lots of things you can do. But definitely finding a, a group of friends, people who trust and respect you and that you trust and respect, to test ideas out and, and ask whether it feels right. You know, are there other ways of looking at this? Um, could you go en masse in, in some way? Or, you know, what did they do? And here's some ideas. And really, I think the other thing that you can do is find your professional association because they will also be some of those natural networks and allies for you. Because sometimes your workplace can feel a little too close, but your professional association, that can be a place where you'll find peers, where you'll find even people in other industries and be able to see what's similar and what's different across industries. What about sexual harassment from the low-level to the more, you know, serious. In my own career, when I began working in television in the early 90s uh, in Adelaide, it was still just okay for the young man who was editing my story to have Playboy images around his edit suite. And I was an on-air television journalist. What did you see and what has changed and how do you feel about the pace of change? So a couple of things, going back to your example about the pornographic images in workplaces, in a lot of heavy industry, whether it was steel or whether it was power, in the late 70s, early 80s, that was definitely a given. That was everywhere. And lots of people found it distasteful, but they put up with it. There definitely was a change. I would have thought in around the mid-80s in heavy industry sites about making sites safe, about absolutely getting rid of pornography on site, eventually getting rid of any alcohol on site. So really changing the safety culture. And as a result of that, putting a stop to a lot of that very overt and often quite toxic sorts of, especially the bloody lunchrooms. Yeah. I mean, of all the places where you just want to go and have a cup of tea <laughs> and and there's a, a really strong, overt, sort of toxic masculinity displayed through pornography. I would never see that at a site now and I'd be very surprised if anyone would put up with that at a site. So that's been a major change. We're also more aware of everyday sexism now, and it's something that we're calling out more and being aware in the language that we use, in the language that excludes people, in the language that categorises people. So I think there's a much greater awareness and stopping that because everyday sexism can lead to almost permission to go much more beyond just the dismissal of someone because of being a woman or dismissing of someone because they're um, LGBTQI. So that has really changed and a much more awareness about inclusive and um, safe working environments, psychologically safe, physically safe. So I think all of those things have been huge changes. Did you ever have circumstances where you actually had to stand your ground and say, that's not acceptable I don't have to work in this environment. Not overt 
and aggressive sexual advances. But there were certainly times when I thought more about organisational unfairness and organisational priorities and thought, no, this isn't where I want to be. And the world's a much bigger place. So I have made decisions where, yeah, I'm not, this isn't somewhere I want to stay anymore. One of the other things that um, struck me when thinking about this interview was it's really common for women to, who have been very successful, like yourself, in a male-dominated industry, to be accused of becoming one of the boys, becoming more masculine in their leadership style. And I've seen it. And I also totally respect it because that's kind of what's needed sometimes just to fit in. How have you navigated that piece of this puzzle? I do find gendered language so interesting. A man is confident and a woman's aggressive, but displaying exactly the same characteristics of assessing a situation, speaking clearly and speaking loudly. I've really tried to avoid the gendered language, but I've also been aware that at times I can make my voice big and I can make my voice loud and I can use a room. I did theatre and and opera singing for a while, so sometimes I would play. I would see what it felt like in the room when I was going to sort of command the room, how I used my... And you go, holy goodness, (laughs) this works. You can almost manipulate a room in how you decide to sit and use your voice. And it became quite fun to see how people responded. And then it led me to being quite aware of how I was going to be in a room. And also when when things get boring, and many a meeting gets boring, observe who is seen as a leader and why and what is it that they're doing that people are clearly turning towards them as as the natural leader. So also use them as a bit of a learning experience. I mean, life's too short to get <laughs> grumpy all the time. So, you know, I'd, I'd really see what did it mean about the dynamics in a meeting and uh, was there anything that I felt I was going to use next time? So what do you use? Tell us what the um, learnings are. It's so funny because when someone wants to speak over the top of me, I will keep speaking and by God it feels rude. <laughs> but you know, use your voice, find out that way, even get some coaching. And I had voice coaches. I did drama classes on presentation. How do you use your voice so that you're reaching the corners of the room and always sit at the table? Even if it's a crowded table, make sure you're at the table because there'd be times when I'd have people in my team who'd want to sit at the back Mm. in a physical room when we had such things as meetings in rooms. I'd say, no, sit at the table and always make a comment. That was something else I learned to do, even if it was the very first one. And I'd often try and and have a comment early so that people know you're in the room. And then if you find it's a bit boring or you haven't got something to add, you know that you've been part of the conversation. That's what I found is something that I've been able to use in, in meetings and then push yourself forward to be a presenter at a conference so that when you're asked to be a presenter at the conference, it's nowhere near as scary. And what does it matter if your knees are shaking? Everyone's knees are shaking when they first speak. It's getting away from that exceptionalism. You're not the only one who gets butterflies in their stomach or feels scared or thinks, 
your thoughts are going to all run away from you. So I think it's being a little bit kind to yourself. I also think, for me, I got over the public speaking thing by just saying, you're not that special. (laughs) People don't really care. All they want is for you to get up there, give your speech, not make them feel too uncomfortable and get off. And once I sort of came to terms with that I wasn't that special, I got, you know, reasonably comfortable at it. Tell me, how would you describe yourself as a leader? Oh, well, all of the usual words I use, you know, a collaborative and... <laughs> I was just joking earlier today. If one more person says they're collaborative. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, it's actually it's quite nice. So someone was talking about me at a thing the other day and they said, while she takes her work seriously, she doesn't take herself seriously. And I think that's sort of part of it, seeing the humanity in people and really finding the fascination and curiosity in your team because they all bring something different. So as a leader, I have to at times be careful not to want to be the most expert person in the room, one, because it's impossible. But, you know, when you're an engineer and you think you just have to know and be competent at everything, to step away from that a bit and try and get a good enough view and then bring in people who you know are going to be really good at their jobs. But I'm awfully collaborative. <laughs> <laughs> what about empathetic? Do you do empathy? Yeah, I think I do empathy quite well to the point where um, sometimes I think if I have tears in my eyes one more time when I hear a, a heartfelt story, I will really berate myself. But I, I do empathy well because I know everyone's lives are complex and messy and tricky, but it's work. And so it's trying to get that balance of how do you support people in their their lives and all of the stuff that's been especially going on in the last two years and still deliver on the business and the work outcomes. And there's a way to do that because often unless it's a hospital or a medical device, it isn't life-threatening. It's annoying when something's late, but if the board get their papers a day late, you know, they might grumble, but not catastrophizing some of the sorts of ways things go pear-shaped in a business. But here's the thing. How many blokes say, I'm a really collaborative, empathetic leader, when you ask them what sort of leader they are? Very few. In fact, I don't know that any would say that. That's interesting. That's interesting. And pretty much every woman I ask <laughs> says that they're collaborative and empathetic. Oh, God. But oh. no, no, in all, in all seriousness, <laughs> how do you find the time, if you're a leader, to be collaborative and empathetic? You've got X number of hours in the day. It's kind of hard with a big team. Don't you find? I think if one of the other ways I would describe myself is disciplined. So I, I have a weekly team meeting with all my execs, as a team, I meet with them once a fortnight. I make sure that it, we've got structure in what we do. I make notes about what we're going to talk about in our catch-up. So I think part of it is just having discipline. And the other one is, as a leader, the most important thing I can do is lead and not then try and do 25 projects that someone else in the organisation should be. And I heard a wonderful phrase, if you're doing the job of someone else, it's called job robbing. And either you're the wrong person for the job or they're the wrong person for the job. So be really clear what it is as a leader 
And it may be at times it feels like I'm not actually doing anything, but you are. You're meeting with people. You're listening to how to support them in their careers. So I think leadership isn't always about being busy and and doing stuff and churning out reports. It is about being empathetic, finding out what's blocking someone else from doing their day, their normal sort of work. Would you describe yourself as someone who's had balance in your career or have you been pretty focused? So I I made a choice at 18 not to have children, so I didn't ever have the sorts of difficulties and choices that many women have had to make. So in that way, I've been very, that's been something that was, um, I could focus on my career. I've always been disciplined about exercise. I get up at 4.20 every morning and cycle and run and do stuff because that's what gives me mental fortitude and a break. And I listen to lots of podcasts actually while I'm I'm doing that exercise. (laughs) So I have always found ways to sort of give myself more than mental breaks. But yeah, there's times when you think it's however late it is at night and I just need to go to bed. So depends on the definition of balance, I think. No, that's a good answer. I'm interested to know whether you ever felt that not having children was a negative in your career stroke life. No, no. And I I do see that it gifted me time that I know for many other women they didn't have access to. So I I saw it as something that actually gave me opportunities. So I lived in Singapore for two years while my husband stayed in Australia because he was busy working. And we had the flexibility to make those decisions. And so I think that actually was something that was a real privilege for me. But what about being judged? I didn't care. <laughs> you were not Julia Gillard? You weren't running for high office? No, indeed. And mm. I, I think it was outrageous comments made about her, her choices in life and uh, in, in many ways. I think she was so poorly treated by many of us in, in, in Australia and certainly the political elite. But no, I didn't um, ever, no, in fact, no one ever, oh, once someone said to me, when are you going to have children at that time? I'm thinking, oh, I don't think this is ever going to happen, mate. I'm a bit, a bit old by now, but, you know. Um, I've heard stories like the completely ham-fisted comments, yeah, to, to women that are 45, are you having another baby? Well, <laughs> well, nice that you think I might be able to. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I, do you think it's got less of a thing now to not have children and operate in the world? I think that people are accepting of many more family yeah. models. I think they're accepting of um, same-sex couples and people deciding who's in the workforce at the moment and who's not and different caring responsibilities. I think Australia and and a few other countries, but certainly in Australia, people are just going, well, you'll make different choices for different circumstances. And I've had siblings where their husband's been the primary carer and they've they've worked or they've both worked and they've muddled along through with, with kids and all sorts of things and single parents. So I think the world is just saying, look, Families come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and different configurations. So I think generally people are more accepting that the family is no one thing and therefore um, you see women making different choices about families. 
For someone who's had an absolutely trailblazing career, it feels like you haven't encountered too many hurdles. You've just gone from one career step to the next. Is that correct? I sometimes described my career as a bit of a random walk. I didn't have this clear, uh, I want to get here and here. I, I would often think, oh, that sounds sort of like an interesting idea. I might just find out some more about that. So the job that came up in Singapore where I was, um, I took on a manager for Asia for, for a business there, I thought, oh, Singapore, that seems sort of interesting. I went home to my husband after one and said, oh, I've, I've already applied for this job in Singapore. Do you <laughs> it might well come off. There were times when I thought I would have liked to have been given opportunities for even bigger roles at, at different times, but they don't always turn up or you get overlooked. Yeah, there were, there were times when I, I would have thought, well, I'm not sure why you asked that bloke you know, without seemingly an interview process, take that big role. I would have liked to have been part of that pool. But, you know. You let it pass. Let it pass after you fume and curse and... Move on. (laughs) As I said earlier, this is a podcast for mid-career professional women, some of whom are in male-dominated industries. As a final question, what is your advice to young women today entering those careers? You can have an absolutely fabulous time in those careers, but in some ways knowing that there will be times when you really question your sanity and the location that you're at, always find ways to stay curious, to to learn, to see what are the things that you can bring that are really quite unique And then if you're not being appreciated or you're not getting the opportunities, see if you're willing to walk away. Don't put up with rubbish. Don't put up with being ignored and overlooked. Right now, there is a skill shortage. And if you're a technical person, I can tell you in engineering, there's something like 50,000 engineering jobs going vacant you are very, very marketable. So don't put up with crap. Don't put up with a workplace where you feel like you're not being appreciated. If that's available to you, really start to explore what's important for you. What, what is your next step on that random walk and how are you going to get there? Bronwyn, I love your final piece of advice. Don't put up with rubbish. Thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on an exceptional career. Oh, it's been a total pleasure and thank you for the opportunity to have a chat. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 